Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's installment of the Gateworld Podcast. This is episode number 15. Today, David and I will be joined by Gateworld Forum moderator Tammy Farrar to talk about Outsiders, the newest episode of Stargate Atlantis. We'll also give you a preview of our upcoming interview with actor Colin Cunningham, who plays Major Davis on SG-1. Plus, there's new Stargate news and features from Gateworld this week. This podcast is officially announcing its endorsement of Apophis Zapakna for president. Lord Apophis, because if you're going to be dominated by someone, be dominated by the very best. The Gateworld Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me this week once again is David Reed, Gateworld's co-editor. How's it going, David? Oh, dude, it's great. I'm here on the floor of the Gold National Convention, and everyone's really excited about the two candidates. Beautiful. <laughs> hey, I've been meaning to ask you, um, we talk about Stargate every week, but... Are there any other fall shows that you've been watching that you're really into right now? I'm watching Sanctuary. Um, Of course. And I'm also looking forward to getting into Fringe. I don't watch TV as it airs. Mm -hmm. I watch it when I want to watch it. Are you a TiVo guy? Uh, Sometimes I'm a TiVo guy, but most of the time I wait until things come out on DVD. So I'm waiting for Lost Season 4 to come out because I haven't seen that yet. Mm-hmm. I watch that on DVD. I watch Smallville on DVD. And I think I'm going to be watch. And I watch Heroes on DVD. And I think I'll be watching Fringe on DVD too. Mm. If you've got the patience to do that, that's, that's a really nice way to watch Lost. I could never do that though. I'm, I'm one of those guys who needs to be strung along and get my fix every week. Ah, uh, see, that would drive me nuts. You know, that shows ha- are geared so much more on one after the other after the other. And to be able to watch them all at once is very rewarding if you have the patience for it. Those those long-term arc shows like Lost, I think, I would I would really love watching a show like that. But then, of course, you get through it in about a week or two, and you've got another mm-hmm. 50 weeks to wait until the next season comes out. That's right. I plan on watching Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, which mm-hmm. I've heard is going to be... View, is going to be starting out of sequence. Have you heard that? What they said was the original episode that Joss wrote and shot to be the first episode, uh, Fox decided that they wanted a different episode to run first. So uh, <laughs> it kind of is a is a hearkening back to some of the bad stuff that went down with Firefly. I don't know if it's going to be the sort of thing where he wrote a new episode number one that is sequentially earlier or if it's actually going to be in terms of the chronology of the of the show, if it's going to be out of order. Because that can be annoying. JMS was forced by TNT to do that with Crusade. They didn't like what he had planned for the first episode, which was, I think, just to jump into the action and have a, have a prototypical Crusade episode. They wanted sort of an origin story. So he wrote one called Warzone and, and ended up not liking it. It's interesting how the networks can pull your chain around. Yeah, here's hoping the dollhouse is good. I I just hope that the news that's been coming out is not is not foreshadowing another Firefly experience. Stargate news. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for October 21st, 2008. Good news for toy collectors this week, as Diamond Select Toys expressed its commitment for continuing to produce SG-1 and Atlantis figures following Atlantis's cancellation and conclusion next January. The next series of figures is coming in December and will include the Atlantis version of Sam Carter, 
a Wraith Warrior, and a limited garrison uniform, John Shepard. A Ronin Dex figure will also be available as a Diamond Previews catalog exclusive. Each figure will include a piece of the ancient control chair for collectors to assemble. Diamond Select said that they are considering favorite characters such as Apophis and Dr. Carson Beckett for the future. Stick with Gateworld for the latest updates. I own, like, every single Diamond Select toy that has come out so far for Stargate. It's my wallpaper border in my spare bedroom. I've been looking at them, and I think the teal is really cool. I've been tempted to buy the teal, and it's actually the, the misshapen size of the head of the staff weapon that has prevented me from from buying teal, but I, I could really go for an Apophis. You're a purist. On you have to have it all right. Yeah, if they do like a golden Apophis with the with the gold headpiece, I could go for one of those. I'm just eager for something other than the, the main characters over and over and over again, you know? I mean, I wish they wouldn't limit themselves to only the people that they have scanned faces of. I just wish that they'd branch out because there are so many cool characters out there that I'd like to own. Yeah, at least you're not a G.I. Joe collector. Hasbro does the same 12 characters over and over again. Oy. There's like 50 characters to choose from, probably much more, between Joe and Cobra, and they keep recycling the same guys over and over again. And ratings are in for the mid-season two-parter of Atlanta Season 5. Daniel Jackson and the mysterious new enemy faced off against the first presidential debate on September 26th, leaving first contact with a 1.1 average household rating. But Part 2, The Lost Tribe, rallied back with a 1.5 rating on October 10th. This is Stargate Atlantis's highest rating so far this season, and it ties the Season 4 finale, The Last Man. Two possible factors in the ratings jump. First, Atlantis is now airing one hour earlier in the 9pm time slot, and it also finally has a companion show in Sanctuary, whereas before now it's been airing just alongside Stargate reruns. Yeah, I think that'll be a big boost for it, too. You've got so many characters from Stargate that are featured in Sanctuary. so Yeah, obviously these live plus same-day ratings are not what they were a few years ago, but oh, fans of the show, I think, keep going back to the fact that sci-fi was at its strongest when it had three solid shows in a row as a block on Friday nights. It had SG-1, Atlantis, mm-hmm. and Battlestar Galactica. And... I think you got to say part of the reason why Atlantis has, has been struggling a bit in the ratings is because not only was that dynamic combo broken up, but there are not even any other compelling original series on Friday nights. They're showing reruns. I wonder how it would have done with Doctor Who. I mean, I'm not a Doctor Who watcher, but, uh, you know, that's a popular show. Yeah. Gateworld Features. Gateworld's interview with Corin Nemec is now available on the website. We gave you an early listen at this 15-minute video interview last week in the podcast. Corin talks candidly about his original casting on SG-1, his decision to bulk up for the role, and the challenge of replacing a character as universally loved as Daniel Jackson. He also answers the question of whether he thinks Jonas's story is complete. Head over to the site now to watch. Coming to the site later this week is GateWorld's interview with actor Colin Cunningham. Colin plays the recurring role of Pentagon liaison Major Paul Davis... He was introduced way back in SG-1 Season 2's A Matter of Time, and he's back in the upcoming Atlantis finale, Enemy at the Gate. David recently chatted with Colin about his experiences playing in the Stargate universe. Here's a preview clip just for GateWorld podcast listeners. Was it Season 2? Yeah, I believe it was Season 2, yes. A great episode. They had this one-er, it was a one-er, and it was at the command center or whatever you know I'm looking at the, the at the gate and they had oh god the whole cast was there and I was the last guy 
And it was a one-shot, so it went from Richard to Amanda to Teal to Michael Shanks to General Hammond to Technician, and then it came to me. I mean, everybody was there, and it was a one-shot, so there no cuts. Uh-huh. And the camera just followed each person as they said their line and get to me every at the last one, and I'd be like, cut. Screw up my line. I couldn't get my line. And I just couldn't get this freaking line. So, okay, go again. Was this your first episode? No. This wasn't my first episode. Oh. My first episode. So this is not the But it's like matter my second time. episode. Oh, okay. You know? And um, Richard, that was it. Amanda, they get to me and I'm like, blank. I kept blanking on the line. Anyway, so Peter DeLuise is directing and and it had, we'd done maybe seven, eight, nine of these things. It's, it's like bad. It's bad. Oh, man. And we do it one more time and we get to the end of me again. Totally freeze, and I hear this disembodied voice saying, "Who'd you have to f- to get this job?" Don't miss our complete interview with Colin Cunningham this week on GateWorld. And finally, our newest addition to the website is a very special interview with one of the architects of Stargate. Michael Greenberg served as executive producer for eight years on Stargate SG-1. We caught up with him at GateCon 2008 to reflect on the success of the series and talk about what he's up to now. Here's a clip. John Symes was our executive at Paramount on MacGyver. He went over to become president of MGM, and he called saying they were making Stargate, the movie, into a television show. Would we be interested? Rick's first reaction was he didn't see how he could do that character. But then Symes said, what if I told you it was a 44-episode commitment? And then I said, well, yeah, then that's definitely something to think about. And so Rick looked at at the movie and a couple of creative uh, sessions with John and Brad and Jonathan uh, showed Rick that he would have the ability to stretch the character and make it more, you know, like he is. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite as stretched as Legend, but at right. least he had, you know, he had um, room to, to work. The main discussion. Last week's episode of Stargate Atlantis was Outsiders. The return of Carson Beckett usually means the return of moderator Tammy Farrar. She is back with us this week. Hi, Tammy. Hi. Hi. Hi, I'm back. Thank you for having me again. We just can't keep you away. Uh, Well, uh, yeah, all that begging helps, too. Listeners, you're supposed to be telling them you want me here. Send that fan mail. Call that listener line. I get get hundreds of emails every day and, and... I'm sorry, they all go straight into the trash bucket. Yeah, anything labeled with, with Tammy goes directly to junk. Yeah, I have a filter. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Delete from or about Tammy. Delete. So last week's episode returned the much debatable and much temperamental to the Pegasus Galaxy, Hoffen Drug, originally invented by the Hoffins in Season 1's Poisoning the Well. Yeah, I'm pretty pleased that this... This nice little story that was in season one has turned out to be such a major arc for the show. Obviously, it came back in uh, The Kindred last season, and has been major since then, but uh, what do you guys think about this? Is the Hoffman Drug story uh, interesting to watch? I enjoyed it coming back. I like that it brings something from the earlier part of the show. I like it tying a thread through, mm-hmm. uh, especially something that's so um, so indicative to this one enemy that we have, and is a, is a good weapon against them. Yeah, and it's very significant for Carson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm really happy with that. I'm really happy that they keep that they went back to that and brought it through some more. I was so surprised when they introduced 
the drug and poisoning the well. I mean, we're not even seven or eight episodes into the show, and already we've got uh, a method of of uh, tainting the Wraith's food supply. Um, even though there's a 50% mortality rate attached to whoever gets um, pricked by the needle to get this drug. But uh, it's nice to see that they're continuing to carry this. I think something like that would be affecting the story mm-hmm. through the show. You know, this this does this does kill the rain. I felt like you had a Shatner moment right then. This doesn't kill the rain. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. What I think is really interesting about the Hoffman drug storyline is that when it first came up in Poisoning the Well, it was it was a morality tale about the Hoffman people and their their desperation living under the threat of the wraith constantly Mm -hmm. but all it took was having that falling into the hands of somebody with no moral scruples at all like michael and suddenly Uh, it becomes it becomes a weapon and that's really what it is in this story is is we deal with the aftermath and you know we kind of have to deal with the aftermath of that being used as a weapon it seems like once that came up in the kindred and michael used it this is a story that has to get told. You have to find out what are the Wraith going to do now that their food supply has been randomly tainted. We know their modus operandi is, is they're going to go and, and try and track down whoever got it and wipe them out to restore the, the purity of their food supply. So it seems like Outsiders is a necessary story, if you know what I mean. It's This right. is a story that has to be told. I like the fact that the Wraith are terrified of feeding on people at this point i'm not sure how how uh, threatening an enemy it makes them but it, i think in a way it makes them very threatening because n- now they're cornered because every time they get ready to feed on someone they have to ask themselves am i gonna die you mm-hmm. know so i can see that they'd be very eager to extract tainted um food from regular humans so that they could feed without hesitation yeah and their food supply is already in short supply because there's so many of them out there now yeah and the replicator war you know the replicators killing off so many planets you know which i don't think was ever really explored to my satisfaction you know that was a big deal mm-hmm. unfortunately the one thing they didn't show was how were they being able to tell a contaminated source from a non-contaminated source and you kind of hit on that david is that yeah they i don't think they can tell <laughs> no and that I don't was think they can tell at all and, and that, I think, um, is something still that's out there hanging. And so you can't really, um, I don't think in this particular case, um, you never got that sense of a desperation from your enemy that makes them more terrifying or more dangerous. They were fairly cool about it. And that kind of ties into, you know, their whole plan, um, what they were doing. It, You know, like when they came into the, the town, they, you know, came in as a group. You know, that the whole, you know, what we were shown, it was almost unrealistic. You know, like, you know, here we come into town. Here's, our, you know, our group of bad guys. You know, you give us the people, we tracked them to here. You know, if you give them to us, we'll leave you alone. You know, you're looking at it like, excuse me, what? Yeah, you this is, give you? <laughs> it was surreal. I mean, uh, yeah. seeing a, a little army of wraith warriors walk in was was reminiscent of seeing... You know, seeing Jaffa walk into a village, the Wraith just don't operate like this. What the heck are they doing? Mm -hmm. Why are there no darts in the sky, like Taylor says? This is not a normal calling there. Why are they here negotiating with their food? Yeah, Yeah. and that that made no sense to me that the whole thing 
came about the way because to me the villagers would have looked at him going uh yeah sure we'll get back with you on that and it's like you know what they're going to be here next week to call or next month yeah you know i was thinking about that and you know if if i was a villager i would have to say okay wraith now let me get this straight you want us to remove all the people from this village that you can't feed on and then you'll leave us alone well if Uh you leave us alone why are you bothering you want to come back and eat us (laughs) yeah so you know that was kind of a duh moment you know i was there going this makes no sense whatsoever. It seemed to be that fact that, that food in the Pegasus Galaxy for, for the Wraith has become so scarce that that's the reason why I think they're willing to do this. They're willing to kind of go against the way they normally do things and come in and negotiate. But yeah, you're exactly right. The, the end result is we're attempting to purify our food source so that we can come back in a week or a month <laughs> or a year and have a good, a yeah. good snack. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that I could think of was that they might be um, gathering them to do research on them, you know, so that they could try and figure out if they could detect them from orbit or, you know, you know, plug a device into a a person before feeding on them and and seeing if they could recognize this Hoffman drug or not and whether or not this individual would be safe to snack on. Or counteract it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did have a scientist who was studying that. And I Mm -hmm. I totally got that sense from, from them as well, but yet it's still... You know, still did not explain that entire scene. That entire scene was just, I'm sorry, it was stupid. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of a better word for it. With the it, Wraith offering an ultimatum? Yeah, because it just, you know, for that being the basis of the rest of the story, um, that wasn't thought through real well. Hmm. I, to me, that was an insult to me as a viewer. It was like, no, you should have you made that a little more tense, um, that, that something... You know, culminated into that moment of look. You know, either you give us these people, you know, or something. It needed to be a little more tense. Yeah, and maybe make it a little more clear why the wraith were acting so out of character. Like, like yeah. they, they need some people who they know have have the the toxin in their system to experiment yeah. on. And I'm over here nodding my head like crazy. You can't even see me doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, totally, I totally agree with that. Totally. I, it just needed to be more. Here's one nitpick that I had at the beginning of the episode when the Wraith first arrive. Mm-hmm. Is Taylor all done being able to sense the Wraith approaching? Does she not have that superpower anymore? Oh. They haven't really used anything of Taylor in a while as far as I'm concerned. She seemed just as surprised as everyone else, obviously, when they they followed the scream out in the village and turned the corner and there were the soldiers. That is true. She didn't even bat an eyelash. Yeah, it's a minor yeah. pick though. Talk about kicking yourself in the butt. Boy, I wish I would have done the would have told you I wanted the queen instead of the the girl team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but I do agree with you there. They they haven't um they haven't really capitalized on that she can really sense all that. She should have been able to sense it quite a ways away cuz couldn't mm-hmm. she pick that up quite, you know, from one ship to another? She can pick it up across the solar system. Yeah, so yeah, they they really they really dropped the ball on a, on a few things when it came to the race. Yeah. Outsiders is largely a a moral dilemma play, I think. It's it's at least the first half of the episode is really about this challenge of we've welcomed these people we've integrated them into our society into our families and now we're faced with the choice of giving them up or being completely destroyed ourselves um and in that respect i think it was very well achieved you mm-hmm. know you that think episode, so 
yeah, I, I liked that about it. The whole act of Elson turning on his uh, his kin and luring them into a trap with the C4. Mm. Um, when he approached them in, in confinement, I uh, didn't recognize what was happening. And then when they started entering oh, yeah. the cave, I was like, oh, I get what's going uh, on here. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the look on his face afterwards sold it yeah. to me. Yeah. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And man, he that was a tough call. And that was yeah. achieved well. I think the casting on this episode was really on the mark. Elson, the, yes. the village leader, and Seferis, the leader of the of the thug gang. Yes. Uh, especially those two guys um, really helped sell what, what was otherwise, I thought, just kind of a generic village problem episode. I have to agree with you. I thought that the casting outside of the SG team was just excellent. I thought they carried off their performance as well. And made you believe everything that they were doing. They really uh, did. Yeah, you believed that the one guy was, you know, a pacifist that, you know, wanted to find a, a you know, a solution for everyone. Where the other gentleman was, you know, he was for his people, and that's that. And you know, you really got that sense from both actors. Um, <clears throat> I have to say though that I thought that the storyline itself, they really did not do a good job of putting that whole thing together at the beginning. Um, I, you know, I know I sat there with my jaw open when uh, Ronan and Taylor came back into the clinic and they're like, what the heck's going on? And here's our, you know, um, Shepard nonchalantly putting supplies in a thing going, oh, well, the townsfolk, you know, they've taken matters in their own hand. I'm like, what the heck? He's just doing this nonchalantly, calmly, not even paying attention to what's going on because he can't, quote-unquote, do anything. I understood that. I understood mm-hmm. he couldn't stop anything. But these the people are being terrorized. And yet yeah. he's nonchalantly, you know, it was just his demeanor that he wasn't even righteously indignated. He wasn't upset until the guy came busting in with his guns. And all he does is whip up a weapon. But yet who's, you know... This is the time when I thought that Beckett just stole the show. I mean, from this moment on, Beckett stole the whole episode. Mm-hmm. When he stood up and said, just shoot him. Shoot him now. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to hand him over, you might as well shoot him now because that's what you're doing. I, I do see where you're coming from, though, Tammy. But but uh, from the opposite perspective, I mm-hmm. really enjoyed Joe's moment with Sepharis. Shepard's moment when, when he was in the cell and Shepard came up behind him and pointed a gun in his head. You know, I thought that that was a really good moment. I thought that was really well acted, and I, f- I felt that emotion. I agree with you there, but that was after the fact. <sighs> I that understand. Was, that was after but... all this had already happened. We're talking, you know, back at the beginning when everybody, you know, this is all just happening. And yeah. you know, there was just no emotion out of any of them, you know, when Ronan's like, well, we ought to do something. I just wanted to slap somebody in the back <laughs> of the head. It seemed like Shepard was not quite sure how far to push things because he wanted. He wanted the villagers to to make their own decision, and then we get to this crisis point where they're basically rounding people up. And yeah, it's, it was almost like a moment of indecision where he wasn't quite sure how far to push things. Mm-hmm. And see, and I and I didn't even get that from him. Mm. I got I'm putting supplies. We're going to take care of the sick people, which I understood. Um, but at that moment, you know, I guess no offense to Flanagan, but I thought felt at that moment he was phoning it in. Yeah. I really didn't get anything from him. And that's why I felt like everything else around him was just more 
um, intense, and he was not there. And so that scene lost a lot for me, which I felt like it should have been more. Because here you had all this, you know, running around, people being, you know, their doors being bashed in, people screaming, people running. And yet we flipped to the clinic. I'm putting things in. What's going on? Oh, well, you know, the villagers decided to take matters in their own hands. You know, nothing. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't even any kind of, there's nothing I can do. There's no, you know, I couldn't stop him. We couldn't do anything. We're taking care of business here. Nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nothing in any respect. No emotion whatsoever. And even if he would have just seemed like he was angry about it, I would have taken that. I didn't read any spoilers for this episode coming up, so all I had was when when Darren posted the Outsiders header on the website and it had Paul in it. I was thinking, okay, Beckett's back. Yeah, there better be a good reason because it seems like they're just throwing us a Beckett bone, you know. And then the Hoffman drug, I realized was was a major theme of this episode. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, perfect, Paul McGillian once again. I I agree with you, Paul. Yeah, I I man, he I can't believe that they killed him off. <laughs> you know, he's I so know. good. He was. Oh, on the ship, I was just, I was blown away with him on the race ship. You know, the whole acting perspective of it and how he was, how he paced all the different things. I mean, it also reminded you of him and and McKay, the banter, the moment, you know, how they did their whole thing um, when he went up and faced the commander. Yeah, Paul Mm -hmm. Beckett was at his wit's end. I don't give a damn what you do to me. Suit yourself. I'm going to enjoy this very much. What is this? What have you done to me? Turns out you're closer to detecting a Hoffman drug than you thought. It didn't take me long to perfect your blood test. And once I confirmed it using samples that you provided, I decided to do one more test just to be certain. On me. You have the dark seven. Indeed. And now, so do you. Mm-hmm. He's like, screw it. You know, this is what I'm going to do. And he had a plan. And it was, you know, I, I thought that it was well done with that character. Although, you know, and it almost made you feel, an, you know, kind of an anticlimactic thing. Because here you, he had all these skills. Um, he's shooting, you know, and he's hitting. I mean, they're showing, you know, he's hitting all these raids. You know, he's not a wuss with the gun. And he's tough. And, you know, he stood up to this commander. Once he knew that he had it, he stood up and said, look, I'm not doing nothing. I'm going to stand here and, and just take whatever. And, you know, did what he did. And all the, you know, these little things about this guy who's um, yet supposed to have, you know, all the compassion. And he does. And he had made the whole show have a feel in that moment that you wanted to just say, oh, and yet you don't know where all of it came from. You don't know where a lot of that came from. I won't say any. Um, And you're not going to see it again. You probably won't yeah. see it again for a long time. And you're just kind of like, I mean, it really was kind of an anticlimactic thing to think. You really want to root for that. And then you're like, oh, why bother? No, he's back a couple times, I think. Oh, well, that's cool. That's cool. Because it was, it was definitely, um, he, he did to me. And not just because I'm a Paul fan, but he really stepped up to the plate for this episode. He really does bring it every time he comes back. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud of that. 
I think that Carson really made this episode. I mean, their Stargate, both SG-1 and Atlantis, have done so many episodes that are uh, Village X is in trouble from threat Y. Whether it's the Wraith, or the Gould, or the Ori. You know, think of, of some of the Village in Danger episodes, how are we going to get them out? Like uh, SG-1 Season 5, The Sentinel. Mm-hmm. And um, Season 10's Line in the Sand. Both of those episodes have something apart from the village threat that really make it something unique and interesting. The Sentinel had the Sentinel device, and it had the fact that we were bringing in two rogue NID agents to try and get access to the Sentinel device. Mm-hmm. Line in the Sand had, uh, in addition to the to, to Sam and Cameron in the face in the phased out house, uh, it also had the whole B story of. Toman, Toman and Vala up, yeah. up on the Ori ship, and him mm-hmm. coming to understand how his religion was being twisted by the Priors. Um, mm-hmm. This episode doesn't have that to nearly the same degree, but it does have Carson, and Carson yeah. and McKay on the ship are that other element that I think helped this episode at the end of the day to to be watchable. Because I'm not really interested in a generic village is in trouble. How do we get them out? episode. Yeah. I have to agree with you as well. It came alive in the second half. Uh and that was, you know, once McKay and Carson started yeah. doing their thing. It really did. Seeing Carson run and gun and uh take out the commander was just cool. Seeing him with mm-hmm. with the stunner uh defending McKay at the console was cool. At no point in this episode did, was Carson ever at a loss. He was never really at uh, he was never scared, he was never freaked out, he was never at his wit's end. He just, you know, he refused to cooperate, and then he found out that he had the toxin, and he, he went in very headstrong into the commander's office and got himself fed on and killed uh, mm-hmm. killed the guy. Uh, which, it's it's a fantastic episode for Carson, but, you know, it also brings up the fact that Carson had his own moral dilemma to work with, which is he... He cites earlier in the episode when they're still on the planet, he cites the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Yeah. And now, when he, he's facing the Wraith Commander, he's using himself as a weapon. Yeah. thought that was a really interesting dilemma for Carson. I continue to um, struggle with the fact that, as interesting as the Wraith can be, they are still so much a faceless enemy. I mean, you can't identify from one to the other, I mean, particularly with the soldiers. But the commanders, you know, the, one swoops in, we knock him off, there's really no glory in it. When, when we killed Kronos, Kronos was dead. Mm-hmm. And then that had an impact on future episodes. When we killed Nirti, that had an impact on future episodes. And mm-hmm. each of the Gould had their own look. And as outrageous as that look was, you know, that was their look. Um, but the, the Wraith, they're just, they're all the same. They're all just one great big hive. And it's, it's so hard to make them an interesting enemy. I see them struggling with it. You know, more, a Wraith commander walks into the village and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, have we seen this guy before? No. Is he a, a brand new character? Is he a brand, I, you know, I don't, I don't know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just a representation of that Wraith threat. It's one of the things that I continue to struggle with when, when trying to appreciate this, this race. I have to agree with you on that. I think that um, yeah. they've been done a disservice by having all these other enemies brought in instead of putting a little bit more individuality and character to them. 
so we could we could feel a little more something a little more you know you could take a little more pride when when our guys are blowing up a race ship or they have a victory you can go yeah you know mm-hmm. and get behind it mm-hmm. well I, I, at this point in the show i was hoping that there would be enough development where okay see episode starts and and the wraith team walks into the village and shepherd looks around the corner and he says oh crap it's George. George, guys. George is back. You know, what's he yeah. going to do this time? Oh, and look <laughs> at the other direction. Oh, my gosh. It's Jeff. Yeah. Jeff, we, we haven't seen Jeff since, since the season four episode, Be All My Sense Remembered, when he got out of the escape pod, and we never thought we'd see him again. He's back. What are we going to do? There's none of that. Yeah. You know? and it's I, just I agree. generic Wraith, wraith mm-hmm. X, you know? Yeah. You feel no tension because they have no identity. Yeah. It's, this is a precarious balance because we asked in our listener question last week if people thought that the Wraith were scary or not, uh, or if they just sort of lost their 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 oomph. As we'll hear in the letters in a few minutes, a lot of people wrote in and said the Wraith were cool until they started to get personalized, and then there's not really anything to be afraid of anymore because they're not this you know ruthless faceless predatory species huh that's interesting so i think there's a it's a it's a challenging balance for the writers to maintain and i don't envy it the wraith as a concept were a really cool idea when they came up with it five years ago but in order to maintain this balance i think it's it's been a tricky tightrope to walk well maybe because they gave us a little we want more and maybe it was kind of one of those things where it was all or nothing you know either you keep it a nameless something that just strikes you know indiscriminately or you make it something you know along the line of like you did with the gould and you give it something for us to be scared of you know you start making them that way you don't make them into our half allies that are devious like they've done with todd but you know if Todd is interesting yes to me todd is i think he's very interesting yeah because you know you you're never sure what his agenda is so when he does something you're like well yeah (laughs) so yeah i have to agree with you there but that's my own personal opinion i'd have to say since they have gone that direction of giving us some uh some insight and some character depth in some of them it's a matter of if you're going to do that on a regular basis then you need to give us a few more if you're going to introduce them in that manner because to me you know now i don't really care if you blow up another hive ship or not it means nothing to me Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they're we just the hive ship out there. We don't yeah. know they are. Yeah. They're just a useless mass. Yeah, it's, it's like stepping on an anthill. Carson's little maneuver here to take out this Wraith Commander would have been a lot more stinging and a lot more cool if this guy had had a name and we'd seen him in three episodes before this. Mm-hmm. I agree. That I agree. would be an impact on the tapestry of the show. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. but and it would it would have had some reverberation. It goes to show that when they do single out Wraith characters and make them unique, like Michael and like uh, Todd, they stick, you know? Michael was in season two, Todd was in season three, now we're in the middle half of season five, and they're still coming back, Mm -hmm. you know? But that's it. And you have a rapport with that character, you think, oh, okay, you know, and you're waiting for him to do something, and it actually builds an emotional and psychological tension. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you do feel it as you're watching the show. You know, it just is there as we were watching um, the two-parter. I, mean, I was totally shocked when Todd took over the ship. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when, he, when he turned around and was like, 
huh, what the heck did you people just do? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> and he just, yeah. you know, and that was to me just awesome because that was, you know, there was a moment where you're like, okay, this guy's your ally, but you can't, you know, you can't trust him. So he can turn on you this fast. And this is how badass your, your ally is. And, mm-hmm. But because of the fact that we know him and it's built over time and each time there's always something in his agenda that you're never sure of, that makes him that, you know, that quality that you're always just a little scared of him. That made the episode to me just cool. Well, now I want to ask you, Tammy, uh, first give mm-hmm. us your overall impressions of Outsiders and then tell me this. Is this because we have the village and the 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 going through the gate and getting into trouble and getting out. Is this a classic Stargate episode? Overall, I enjoyed the episode. Uh, as I said, I thought they did a great job casting uh, all the the um, extra characters. Out of 10, I would give it at least a 7.5 to an 8. I enjoyed a lot of aspects of it, um, but the second half really pulled it together for me um, because of the crater. I thought that was just awesome, the bomb. Carson and, and McKay and their banter and the whole, you know, the whole aspect on the race ship. Um, McKay coming up with a little cute idea of beaming them, you know, out of the, the dark. That was that was fun. Everything about this show for me that made it was uh, Beckett and McKay, the villagers and how they put all that aspect of it together. Um, mm. And then as a classic Stargate, the fact that it was the team. Um, and that, yes, it was nice to see the gate. It was nice to see the team doing some stuff <laughs> all together. Although I can't say I was real impressed with the team to get, you know, all over. Um, but it was like you're saying, as Darren had pointed out, it was planet X has a problem with problem Y. And that to me is classic Stargate. They have to, you know, we have to go in mm-hmm. and save the day. And they did. However, you know, and then, you know, problems A, B, C, and D happen, and, you know, all the geniuses figure it out. You know, some of them shoot their way out, some of them think their way out, and, you know, and then you always have the one that, you know, shines. And in this case, it was Carson. David, how about you? It's so good to have Tammy on here because, because on so many different levels, she and I watch the show for different reasons. So she may like one thing and I don't like the other thing, you know. Mm-hmm. The highlights for me were the guest stars of this episode. I was watching this dilemma unfold on the television screen and thinking to myself, I don't know how I would solve this. That's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. I loved the mine shaft set. I loved that set design. I hope we see more of that again. I was disappointed in the visual effect of the uh, of the mine shaft collapsing from yeah, above. So was I. I don't think it had enough weight to it. I think the soil collapsed too fast. Yeah, it oh, looked like you? it was a one foot by one foot mound of soil that collapsed into the ground. That's what it looked like. It was. It looked like it was very small. Yeah. How big of a dorks are we? Because this is a major issue to us. I don't, I'm a yeah. girl. I don't know how to blow things the up. The right. dirt <laughs> fell too fast. I loved Carson in this episode. Rodney started to get on my nerves with yes. the whole uh, him and Carson sharing a dart together. It's not working. Why is it not working? Blah, 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 blah. That was like, okay, I'm about to put the television on mute. <laughs> and then the rush at the end with the uh, with them being ejected from the from the dart and exposition, exposition, exposition. Oh, and, then yeah. that's the, and I was like, whoa, whoa, what? And I had I to rewind. That. That's awfully daring, you know? And he just assumed that they would launch darts. And not just the just fact like, that they did it and they they put their entire future on the fact that they would launch darts and that the darts would 
that dart would swoop down and and use its yeah. beam at a at a good spot. But yeah, the fact that <laughs> McKay launched into the exposition of his plan as they were running away. Yeah, as was, they're under fire. You I mean, know? I know it's McKay, and he likes to brag about that kind of stuff. But I found that little bit of dialogue to be very implausible. As a parent, I think that was a moment that um, that came into play where you just tune out things that you don't think are relevant. I seriously think at times when I'm watching, I don't realize that I'm tuning stuff out. Yeah. And I, when I watch it the second time, I go, oh, how did I miss that? I never left the couch. You mean like the little yeah. McKay exposition? Yeah, I think because I'm sitting in there when you guys were talking about it, I had to really realize, oh, he did do that, didn't he? Yeah. And I think I really just kind of tuned it out. Einstein, sit down, hmm. Einstein. <laughs> oh, what did I miss? I do, and I think that comes from, you know, I don't know. You know, I was trying to think, why in the world would that have to, why would I have tuned that out? But if it was something I thought was irrelevant, gone. Yeah. I call it my, my parent radar. You'll get it, Darren, soon. And the last point I would like to make, I, I absolutely agree with Tammy. It was great. It was great seeing the Stargate in this episode. It really was. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so I would have to say 7 out of 10. All right. <laughs> and you, Darren? And you, Darren. I think you guys like this one a little bit more than I did. I think I want to give it a 6 out of 10. Um, it's it's a really great episode for Carson, and I love the Carson McKay stuff on the ship. Um, the pluses, other than that, were the production design, I thought, was really great. Uh, the look of the village and the lighting yes. was yes. really great. Uh, and again, we said many times the guest stars were were really on, especially Elson, uh, mm-hmm. the the village leader, and his his obvious inner turmoil and conflict throughout the whole episode, culminating yes. with that look on his face yes. after he's sent his own people in t- to their death. Um, but but other than those great elements, I thought that overall the story was was a bit too weak. I think that as a season one or a season two episode, I would have liked this a lot better, but. I gotta say, I think season five has has set the bar higher than this. Um, I'm probably a little more generous than you guys, but I I think that sometimes when you've got a couple of really good performances, that can cover a multitude of sins. Yeah, and we're fans of the show. It's it's obvious that we want to yeah. look at the the elements of episodes that we like and do our best to overlook those that we're not quite thrilled yeah. with. And so I think that that a lot of times that's um, that comes into play. Um, when you're looking at it overall, you know, giving them, it's like, okay, this, all these aspects I really like. So all this other stuff, I'm going to sweep it under the rug because, you know, maybe it was just an off day. I look know? at the Gate World poll for this episode, you know, and I, I've kind of learned to to use Gate World's poll as a barometer for how I'm going to like an episode before I see it. You know, every mm-hmm. episode on Gate World is always outstanding. It's, I mean, you know, the, every episode is always well into the outstanding nowadays and you just learn to live with that you know well by that by that you mean that the majority are giving it majority, a, giving it a 10 out of 10 the biggest vote is always a 10 out of 10 but if there's a strong a strong 9 out of 10 and 8 out of 10 vote then mm-hmm. that means that I'm going to think the episode is so-so you know you can always mm-hmm. tell if the 9 out of 10 i mean if it's majority like 90% a 10 out of 10 you know it's going to be an excellent show but if but if 8 and 9 are right along up there with 10 you know it's going to be a so-so episode yeah i watched that 10 out of 10 and within within the first few days after the episode is aired if if 10 out of 10 is upwards around 70 or 80% of the total votes 
then you know that episode is scoring very high. If the tens are down around 50%, or I think Outsiders last time I looked today was at 47%, giving it a 10 out of 10. Obviously, that's still a clear majority, but it's obviously an episode that didn't necessarily resonate as well as others. I have to agree with that because, you know, I think that my, my particular enjoyment of this is it still seriously is coming from the, the same things I think we're all agreeing on. The guest stars, Paul's performance. Yeah, it's a great um, Beckett episode. It really is. If you're going to watch it, that's what you're watching it for. Yeah. You're not watching it for any other reason. I mean, Tammy, we had you on for Whispers was the last podcast, and that was Paul's last episode. And in Whispers, right. he was he was present. Yes. And in oh. Outsiders, he's the hero. Oh, night and day, night and day between these two these two episodes. I think as far as uh, what he was given to work with and what he showed he can do personally. Yeah. I think that this one. For again, I you know the most I can say is that if anybody else was supposed to step up, they, there was no way for him. He stole this episode. This was his. He owned it. Listener mail. In last week's podcast, we asked you to write in and tell us what you think of the wraith. Are they still scary, or have they lost their fangs? David, who's our first letter from? Lithus Rose or Lithus Rose writes. The Wraith as individuals are pretty cool, but as a whole, I am somewhat dissatisfied with how they progressed. As a race, they haven't quite lived up to their reputation. They started off very menacing, but over the seasons have gotten less and less scary. What happened to the ability to regenerate so quickly or to confuse the mind with psychic images? I agree with this right in 100%. Mm-hmm. That's one thing from Rising when they established the Wraith originally is having these superpowers that I miss. You shoot one down and they bolt right back up and, and get on their feet and come back at you again. And that, that instant regeneration, it seems like it's the sort of thing that we haven't really even seen since the early part of Season 1. Yeah. The replicators are the exact same way. You have to remember the, the mechanical spider replicators in uh, the Season 3 episode Nemesis. You, Jack O'Neill would break them apart and they would come back together. Mm-hmm. And that also disappeared too. So that's kind of a theme. you know. They introduce a bad guy and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, we can't defeat them. And then by the next season, you, know, you shoot them once and they have to move on with the story. So that's kind of a, it's kind of a downer of that. Mm. Mac Jackson writes... I haven't thought of the Wraith as scary since the first season. I enjoy the idea that they are ravenous creatures that have no soul. I think the more personality and brains you give the Wraith, the more they look human and therefore less threatening. It would have been better to have had them be led by a different, more manipulative race, thereby adding more villains to the show and leaving the Wraith a race of heartless predators. Kind of like the uh, Jem Hadar to the Founders. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of. DS9 was the Jem Hadar. That would have been a really interesting way to take the Wraith. Mirwalker says, Though I enjoyed seeing the character development of Todd, I have been disappointed at yet another sci-fi series humanization of a non-human enemy race. The Wraith have been gradually warmed up and weakened by individualizing them and letting them suffer from jealousy, narcissism, guilt and remorse, and love. All the best and worst of being human. To me, what made the Wraith so scary was that they were human enough in appearance, but the similarity stopped there. For all the glory of the human condition, the show rightly emphasizes SGA has diminished their primary villains by slowly converting them into misguided goth versions of us. Yeah, I um, I look at the Wraith anymore and I see punk rockers, you know, uh, in a, and I, I don't find punk rockers scary. I find them to be rather adolescent. <laughs> and that's – I'm not saying – 
that to demean the producers for the creating this this race. It's just when I see them, that's how I feel, you know. And I and I want to be honest about that. Yeah, so. those comparisons to to the the Marilyn Manson villains have been made since since before Atlantis premiered when those first pictures of the Keeper came out. But I wanted to include Mirwalker's letter here because I think it's very well stated, very well articulated. I just think he's right on. And I think we have some listener mail. Hi, my name is Jeremy. I'm from Hillsborough, Oregon. This is in regards to the listener question. Are the race still scary? And my answer is no, they are not. Ever since they introduced the ability where the race can restore your life and heal you back to the way you were, they just lost their scariness. Ever since then, the people in Atlantis have been sucked dry more often because they always have that fallback of being restored. And before that was introduced, being sucked dry was actually a real threat. So I don't think the race are scary anymore. That's just me. Hi, I'm Rachel calling from Tennessee. I just wanted to say that you guys have a great podcast and it's an awesome idea of making a podcast about the episodes. And in closing, I want to say cheers to you guys for finally doing our interview with Cornemic. Good job. And for this week's listener question, clips shows like this Friday's episode Inquisition often get a bad rap, but Stargate usually does them rather well. Which clip shows from the history of SG-1 or Atlantis has been your favorite, and why did you like it? Write in or call in with your answer. Yep, now I went back and looked through the episode guide to find all of the clip shows. For SG-1, you're looking at Politics, Into the Fire, Disclosure, Inauguration, and Citizen Joe. For Atlantis, there have only been two clip shows, Letters from Pegasus back in Season 1 and This Friday's Inquisition. Coming up on the GateWorld podcast, next week we're talking about Inquisition, and there's no new episode of Atlantis scheduled for Halloween night, so on November 4th, we'll have a special topic. David and I will be talking about the characters on SG-1 and Atlantis that we lost too soon. Characters like uh, Lieutenant Ford, Jonas Quinn, some of those fan-favorite characters who were regulars or close to it, who we think got the boot too soon. And then on November 11th, Atlantis is back, and we're talking about the prodigal. Thanks for joining us for the podcast once again this week. We want to hear from you. Call the GateWorld Podcast Hotline at 616-712-1647, or you can post over on the podcast feedback thread. Answer this week's listener question, tell us what you think of Atlantis or of this podcast, anything on your mind that's related to Stargate. And we will post. In this episode of the podcast, we talked about Outsiders with our special guest, Tammy Farrar from GateWorld Forum. And we gave you a preview of our interview with Colin Cunningham. Look for that on the site later this week. And for links to everything we talked about today, head over to GateWorld and look for the episode number 15 show notes. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. This is David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. <laughs>